the Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings podcast. I'm Nathaniel Darkish. And this is Max George. Abandon hope, all ye who listen here. Today we're going to talk about As Above, So Below. Oh, I love this movie so much. And not because it's a good movie, but because of all of the awesome stuff in this movie. That's fair. I mean, I definitely don't think it's a perfect movie by any means, but I really do enjoy it. And I'm excited to to dig into it because I feel like there's a lot of really rich veins of really interesting material here. Uh, even though it isn't, uh, like I said, by any means perfect. So, And even more exciting than the movie is that this is our sixth episode! Woohoo! It's crazy. I mean, we've done six episodes. It's been over, what, like three months now? So about two a month. So not, not a bad uh, track record there. No, not at all. And, you know, getting pneumonia or whatever definitely kicks my voice. I am recovering for all of our listeners. That's why this episode has taken a little bit to get to us. Yeah, and I've had a cold. And it's December. So you'll probably hear a little bit of that in our voices. Um, so our our dulcet tones may not be quite as dulcet as normal, but we'll do our best. It'll be a little raspy today. We are one episode away, though, from the magic seven episodes that they say is like the podcast magic number. <laughs> can't think of a better term for it ah, magic number works well enough for me and we'll probably actually record that later on this week so we might get kind of a double dose of us as we want to record a very special christmas episode uh, so expect that soon yes 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 so this episode for all of our listeners is going to be jam-packed we have so much information from this movie that we're going to cover so get excited there's a lot gonna happen and it's going to be fun. This, I mean, this is one of my favorite horror movies because of all the information that kind of the movie displays and portrays. But it's kind of under... I don't know how to describe it. It's not just in your face. You have to kind of watch the movie a few times and research a little bit as well. Definitely. I mean, that's something actually I really like about this. And, and we'll dig into that in more detail, but... You know, it, it gives you so much stuff. Like, you can tell that the filmmakers really dug into a lot of Christian mythology and uh, folklore and all sorts of really interesting stuff when they made this movie. Not all of that comes through super clearly at times, but it's all there. You can really tell that they did their research, and it's fun to really dig into this. It's It deals with some really cool topics. So I was just going to say that. I think this is why we like this movie so much is because it definitely ties into my occult fanaticism, but it also, you know, has a lot of roots in literature, you know, Dante's Inferno, which you'll be talking about in this episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, And just, it really kind of has both of our favorite things tied into a movie. And, and I love it. It's, it's a fun, it's a fun watch. Sometimes the camera gets a little shaky. It's a found footage movie, but you know, you, you make it through it and it's fun. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I had a fun time seeing it in theaters. I've had a fun time rewatching it with you recently. 
Um, I really, really enjoy it. Without further ado, will you take us into your literature world, Nathaniel? Okay, so today for my Studying the Strange segment, I'm going to uh, go into part two of my lecture series on the origins of horror. Uh, Today I'm going to talk about specifically uh, Judeo-Christian beliefs and imagery and how that has influenced the genre. I'd say just right off the bat, you know, you can really look at Judeo-Christian beliefs as being one of the biggest influences on horror, especially as we know it today. So much of of what we see in almost every horror movie, every horror novel, video game, whatever, almost all of them deal with, in some capacity or another, ideas of like heaven and hell, divine punishment, uh, demons, witchcraft. You know, all of these ideas are very, very prevalent in the horror genre. And all of that really has roots in Christianity and Judaism, be it the Bible, be it uh, other forms of, of belief, such as different texts that deal with the order of heaven and of hell and what demons do. And a lot of this is so uh, enormously prevalent. I mean, you know, I'd say almost every other horror movie you see has demons in some capacity or another. And, I mean, that really all goes back to how uh, important Christianity and Judaism uh, is in terms of tying into kind of the, the culture and the lexicon that is around uh, around horror, especially Western horror. And I want to kind of even go back a little further. You said that, you know, Christianity and Judaism really have made an impact into the horror scene you know with the the demonology the order of heaven you know divine hierarchy all of that christianity and judaism pull us so much from early paganism beliefs and i believe you're going to be talking about this a little that you know before the christians there were the pagans and a lot of those pagan ideals and pagan stories were implemented into early christianity and were kind of turned on their head and changed for the religion and so you you see a lot of parallels between paganism and christianity and that's probably going to scare some of our listeners but i mean it's true if you look at history a lot of the pagan traditions incorporate themselves into christianity it, it, it's just how it happens yeah looking at a very mild example uh just the the placement and a lot of the traditions around christmas are really built around you know a lot of holidays and and festivals and like uh, that that were practiced by different groups that were eventually kind of pulled into the Christian faith. Um, you know, we look at that uh, Saturnalia, for example. Many of the ideas that we see come through in terms of how we practice uh, and celebrate Christmas really have their roots in Saturnalia, which was very unchristian in a lot of ways. Right, absolutely. And, you know, you see it in demonology as well. You know, one of the most recognized demons that we have is Leviathan. And Leviathan is a pagan god. And you see that very prolific in demonology, which is, it's really cool. Yeah. And and so, I mean, yeah, a lot of these ideas existed in these other cultures. And then I think the rise of Christianity and, and how uh, influential it was on kind of the the development of western society meant that these beliefs because they became christian you know whether or not they started out that way really came through very prominently so you know you you mentioned leviathan but i mean we also have other demons 
that are part of the official hierarchy of hell, such as Baal, who was, you know, worshipped by assorted groups, you know, specifically uh, mentioned in the Bible. Yeah, it went from being a god that was worshipped by a different religion to being the name of a demon. And so that that just came up over and over again. And, and then also, you know, we see uh, a lot of, uh, especially in early Christianity, white witchcraft being practiced, even though a lot of religious texts will say things like, uh, you shall not suffer a witch to live. Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of these beliefs were kind of tweaked and altered. And so, you know, they were incorporating certain practices of witchcraft into their religious services or beliefs. And, you know, we're using that for healing or for whatever, when, you know, previously the belief might have been very against these ideas. And so it's kind of interesting to see how, how the religion and its various forms kind of was built around a lot of these ideas. Rome became very uh, important in terms of uh, how the, the early Catholic Church was built, did a lot to reshape and, and really rethink how a lot of the religion was being practiced. Right, and I think... You know, that kind of leads into this next topic of, you know, Christianity. And if you look through the Bible, they don't really talk about, you know, named angels or named demons. A lot of kind of that canonical kind of personification of these entities came from outside works, which I think is really fascinating that if you look in the Bible directly, you're not going to find, you know, all of these 50 names of, you know, the princes of hell you know, you get Lucifer, you get Satan, you get Beelzebub, you get Legion. And again, that I mean, it's so fascinating to me that cultures, you know, once they think that they're, uh, once these cultures think that they're kind of the dominant culture, they kind of assimilate anything else into it. And that's kind of where we get to Dante's Inferno. Dante's Inferno is really the pinnacle of what modern Christianity considers hell, hell to be like. You know, obviously there's going to be thousands of denominations who have different interpretations of hell, but really Dante gave us that first look into the Christian idea of hell. And it, it's a fascinating read. I love Dante's Inferno and you enjoyed it as well. Did you not? Yeah, I really did. It was really kind of a surprising reading experience, though. I just picked it up for the first time a few weeks ago and it wasn't what I expected. You know, I, I, I mean, I knew that it was a, a piece of poetry and... You know, I knew kind of the, the gist of it. You know, it's it's Dante traveling through hell uh, in order so he can you know make progress to eventually reach purgatory and then, you know, eventually reach heaven from there to reunite with his lover. Um, but that's really all I knew other than, hey, like he goes to each circle of hell and stuff like that. But I really didn't have a lot of the details. And I, and I feel like a lot of times when it's referenced, a lot of times it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, the Inferno. It, like everyone already knows what it really comprises of and so i came across a lot of stuff that really surprised me while reading and uh, do you want to just kind of go into a few things that you liked that you didn't like and i mean i, I think in this case it's, it's kind of less of the like versus didn't like and more just more on board with and and was more just surprised by i mean you know i expected there to be you know a lot of demons a lot of souls getting tortured in different ways and so you know that was that was very prevalent in the text but it wasn't exactly necessarily dealt with in, in the way that i expected it to be you know i kind of thought that dante the character would actually like interact more with with a lot of these you know people being tortured or you know with these demons or you know, maybe like have some sort of combat or some sort of like having to best people to continue but it really wasn't that it was mostly 
he walked through as an observer because he didn't belong there. And so that was kind of interesting. It took out some of the excitement from the read that I kind of expected, but it was still kind of interesting to see that, yeah, he was kind of a passive observer of almost everything that he was dealing with. Something I really did not expect was how prevalent Greek and Roman mythology would be. It was... Oh, this is my favorite part. I could talk about this all night long. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, it was chock full of, like, mythological creatures. I mean, you know, there's centaurs and harpies and sirens and all sorts of... Basically, I mean, everything that, that you see in, in Greek mythology as the monsters that the great heroes would fight, they were all there. And also all of the Greek philosophers, they were all there too. And, you know, I think that kind of brings it back to what we were talking about earlier is that... You know, paganism had been around for so long before, you know, Jesus Christ came around. And then after his crucifixion, you know, the early Christian movement took kind of a while to get its its bearings straight. And then you had the, you know, the big issue in Constantinople where, you know, the Nicene Creed kind of merged and made Christianity kind of the universal religion at the time. And a lot of people didn't want to give up their, you know, their pagan beliefs. They had been, you know, raised with these ideas and these monsters of their, you know, childhood. And now they had to somehow assimilate them into this new religion. And I think it's unfortunate because a lot of the Christianity kind of movement took those pagan elements and made them malevolent. You know, you you think of the traditional idea of the devil and you think of, you know, goat hooves with the horns and the goatee. Well, that's a complete... You just described Pan. Exactly, exactly. That a lot of these, you know, Greek and Roman creatures became demons and became advocates of the underworld. And that's, it's, it makes sense, but it's also kind of tragic that this beautiful culture that had been in existence for so many years all of a sudden became personified as evil, you know, and that... For someone who loves the occult and especially Greek mythology, it kind of breaks your heart that all of these beautiful stories are now incorporated into, you know, the cornerstone of what we think of when we think of hell. But, I mean, to be fair, I feel like a lot of that has kind of disappeared from the culture in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, certainly we still have the oh, absolutely. goat hoofed uh, Satan, but besides that, you know, a lot of the other creatures like, you know, Cerberus being in hell and... You know, even, uh, you know, that Pluto himself is, is one of the head demons in hell. All of that is has kind of disappeared. I mean, I find that really interesting because it is so prevalent in, in the Inferno. And that's kind of, yeah, like you said, the sort of go-to model for what hell is defined as for a lot of modern Christians. But a lot of what really made up the Inferno is gone from what, what the current belief system is like very very different so we see in the bible it's usually referred to as you know a, a lake of fire and brimstone and that's definitely present but yeah it's just so weird to see this kind of weird mashing of of yeah all of these mythologies and also biblical christianity you know we we talked a lot about kind of this you know quote-unquote bastardization of pagan religions and i think it's really interesting especially when you get into kind of the idea of christian demons like we mentioned you know the bible itself hardly mentions any specific demons by names but you go to any christian you know institution and they're going to tell you about all sorts of different ones you know you got valak from the conjuring that's a real demon but where did that name come from it doesn't 
appear in the Bible anywhere. You have names like Azazel, and like I mentioned earlier, Leviathan, and you have all of these different names that, again, were pulled from existing histories and existing mythologies. I, would, I just wanted to make mention that, you know, there are some truly original demons that you find in, say, you know, one of the more popular grimoires, like the Lesser Key of Solomon, which, you know, those demons are very unique to the Lesser Key of Solomon. Mm -hmm. But again, that's only a portion of all the demons. But but even still, like if you look at the Lesser Key of Solomon, so much of that is also kind of what we as modern Christians often look to when we're trying to define hell. And it is, you know, just really a, a grimoire. It's it's really hard to determine who actually wrote it. I mean, you know, the claims are that it was King Solomon, but it's really hard to verify that. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that's what's so fascinating about this movie is that there's so much mythos and there's so much kind of history behind it. And it doesn't just throw it at you in the face. You kind of have to know what's going on behind the scenes to really appreciate this movie. Mm-hmm. I guess just one other thing I wanted to mention about the Inferno before we start talking about the movie and then kind of, I think, bouncing back a little bit to the Inferno when we're dealing with, you know, the specific circles when they come up is the fact that the Inferno is actually largely built around the writings of Aristotle, which I thought was super fascinating. That, you know, not only is it structured in a way that it pulls a lot of creatures from mythology and people from, you know, Greek history, but it was also specifically structured in many ways just based off the writings of Aristotle rather than any Christian text. And, and you know, and that was done in the 1300s as opposed to, you know, like, like I guess I would I would be less surprised by that if it were written much, much earlier in time, you know, back when those beliefs were still so prevalent in Italian culture. But it really wasn't. Well, and I mean, in the, re re I'm going to say Renaissance, because I just watched How I Met Your Mother, <laughs> the Renaissance, uh, they really pulled a lot of those ideals from the classical Greeks. And so, you know, it, it doesn't really surprise me that Aristotle was so prominent because, you know, to Dante, Aristotle was just this philosophical, you know, wonder kid who had all of these wonderful ideas. And you see a lot of those Greek imagery and Greek ideas resurging in the Renaissance. That's true. I didn't consider that. But the, I mean, yeah, he was really right in the thick of that time period, so... That makes more sense. Uh, anything else you wanted to kind of mention about, you know, Dante's Inferno specifically before we kind of dive into the movie? Um, the other thing I just wanted to touch on was just simply kind of going back to uh, Christianity in general. I just wanted to mention that a lot of the themes that you see in a lot of modern horror really kind of go back to a lot of these Christian ideas. Um, I just wanted to give a few examples just to kind of reinforce that idea, just to show, you know, how influential it really is. Um, so I'm going to mention Frankenstein, uh, which specifically was dealing with the theme about, you know, can a man create life? And, you know, so can a man become as God? And, you know, obviously in the, in the story, he, uh, Frank, Dr. Frankenstein does succeed in that. Um, but I mean, basically the whole thing kind of is structured in a way where he's getting punished for his blasphemy in a, in a lot of ways. So that was kind of an interesting idea and, you know, showing very much, the prevalence of that you know christian belief still running through even though it was dealing with a lot of 
you know, science and, you know, a lot of science fiction aspects, which, I mean, in many ways, that's one of the very first science fiction novels, uh, as well as being a horror novel. Then also, you know, just simply looking at a lot of, you know, the creatures that we're familiar with, vampires, specifically Dracula, as repelled by uh, religious symbols such as the cross. And, you know, and even it's just, you know, constantly a lot of the quotes that we hear uh, in different things, such as uh, Night of the Living Dead, you know, it's, it's when there's no more room in hell, the dead shall walk the earth. It's kind of a very biblical idea from like Book of Revelation, and that was incorporated into that story as well. So, I mean, time and time again, we are seeing these ideas come through uh, in in our horror literature and our horror movies and all of that. Yeah, I think those are all great points that, you know, and I'm going to talk a lot about kind of that idea that you mentioned with Frankenstein of man becoming God, in terms of the phrase as above so below you know spoiler alert as above so below is actually a very very esoteric mantra that's used in a lot of mysticism and it has quite a bit of history behind it uh, but primarily the idea behind that saying is you know as above as in heaven so is below here on earth uh, and you see it all in all sorts of different literature and art and movies and i think you made some really good points of, you know, these Christian ideals are so ingrained into society. Yes, absolutely. And and I think really that's that's what boils down to more than almost anything else is that because Christianity has such a strong influence on our culture, but I mean really just yeah, its influence on western culture really defines the way that we then interact with things that scare us. And, and kind of defines the things that scare us. You know, we're scared of going to hell. We are scared of things that are ungodly in different ways. And so, of course, our horror is going to reflect that. Well, I think this is probably a good point to kind of move in to actually talk about the movie itself. Yes. As above, so below. Okay. So this movie, again, I could, I just, I love this movie so much. It was one of the first horror movies I ever bought and have as a physical copy well it's it's definitely worthwhile do should we just do like a basic plot run through and then kind of maybe dig in as, we, as we're going through yeah sure uh so the movie came out in 2014 and kind of the big selling point for this movie was it was set in the catacombs of france uh, and doing research about the movie something really cool was this was actually filmed in the catacombs it wasn't a set it wasn't props or anything that you know, the actors and the camera people went into the actual catacombs of France, which I just think is amazing. Yeah, it's it's really impressive. So I've I've been to the catacombs and I'm going to brag about that forever because it was one of the coolest things I've ever done. And, you know, just having walked through it, one, it's amazing to see all these skeletons, and you know, see all of the really cool stuff that they do with it. But just like the thought of hauling down some of these props like the like the piano that's incorporated into it, the yeah. car later on. Like, I can't imagine hauling that down there because I know how freaking deep into the ground that the catacombs are. They're really, really deep. Um, so just kind of a quick synopsis of the plot. Uh, the main character in it is a academic. Her name is Scarlet. And her father did a lot of research into the Philosopher's Stone. You know, the alchemaic stone that can turn metal into gold and can promise eternal life. Um, and she finds some clues that kind of lead her to Paris, France, where she learns that kind of the location of this mysterious philosopher's stone 
lies within the catacombs itself. And so she kind of gets a ragtag team of, you know, catacomb tour guides that aren't really tour guides. I don't know what the right word for them would be. Scoundrels. (laughs) Scoundrel spelunkers. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and she gets another friend who she's done, you know, other excursions with the cameraman, and they all, you know, bunker down and go into the catacombs to look for the Philosopher's Stone. And not only for the Philosopher's Stone, but, you know, for the treasures of the catacombs, you know, the the promised riches of Nicholas Flamel, the supposed creator of this mystical stone. However, as they start going into the catacombs, they start to realize that things are getting a little crazy. Yeah, so <laughs> right off the bat, um, they kind of get trapped down in the catacombs. There's you know, cabins behind them, and so they have no choice but to move forward. And as they're moving forward, things get weirder and creepier. And, you know, I mean, really, I mean, like right off the bat, it starts out pretty creepy. They, they're going past a chamber where there's a bunch of naked people all just like chanting and having some sort of weird ritual, and then, and that's that's really not even the creepiest thing that's going on. I mean, you know, as they're going in, it's just weirder and weirder things happen. One of the first things is they run into a phone that is ringing, and when they pick it up, or when Scarlet picks it up specifically, she hears her dead father's voice. Yeah, it kind of shows what what sort of adventure they're going to be having. And really kind of the awesome part about this movie is once they actually, you know, they they go through the catacombs and they kind of enter this kind of closed off, caved in section that, you know, one of their tour guide scoundrel guys is like, no, no, we can't go in it. You know, I had this friend who went in this way and he, we've never seen him again, you know, and things come to pass where they, obviously they have to go through this specific entryway. And from that moment on, every kind of level that they move on from that point to the end of the movie represents a layer of hell that you find in Dante's Inferno. And it's it's fascinating to try and figure out what layer they're in and what is going on that represents that layer. Yes. And, and also, as they're going through, um, they start kind of getting picked off one by one. And their kind of method of death and you know, kind of the circumstances uh, around it kind of corresponds to a sin for each of them. And those sins correspond to each circle of hell as well. Yeah. Do you have those levels of hell, Anya? I can. Yes. If you want to kind of go over them, I think that would be really fun to just kind of see what they did with the movie itself. Yes. Um, so the first circle is Limbo. Uh, souls who basically were were good people but you know like weren't baptized are kind of just hanging out hoping to progress out of hell and into uh, purgatory the second circle is lust which if i remember correctly is tied to the death of the cameraman do you remember for sure uh let me pull it up and i can verify do you want to just keep going though yeah, and i yeah. will just fact check you okay and then there's gluttony is the third circle the fourth circle is greed. Fifth circle is wrath. Uh, the sixth circle is heresy. Seventh circle, violence. Eighth circle is fraud. And the ninth circle is treachery. Uh, and that, of course, is the 
uh, center of hell where uh, Satan himself resides. And so to kind of um, explore those, you know, layers a little bit more, uh, I mean, the the cinematography of this show is also trying to reflect these different layers of hell, which I think is, is really brilliant. Uh, and so like Limbo, you know, they go through a lot of long tunnels containing inscriptions of poetry and philosophy, which if you pause the movie and can pick them out and read, it's actually pertaining to the Divine Comedy or Dante's Inferno, which is, is awesome. Yeah, and, and I mean, the idea of, of it being poetry and philosophy is actually really applicable to Limbo because um, that's actually where Dante sees most of these, you know, Roman and uh, Greek philosophers. Exactly. And then the second level, Lust, um, you know, as you read in Dante's Inferno, it's almost completely colorless, um, and there's loud vortex of the souls kind of hissing. And so you hear that in the movie, which is really awesome. The third layer is gluttony, and in the third layer, especially in Dante's Inferno, you get to meet Cerberus, and so in this floor you hear this kind of unseen growl going on in the ambiance, and it's, it's beautiful. Oh, it's so awesome. Yeah, that part was really cool. And then they reach the fourth layer, which is greed, and that's kind of where they find these treasures that they think, oh, this is the Philosopher's Stone, but it's all just kind of a an illusion obviously this is this greed and I, I think it's important to mention that around this point in the movie just a little bit before this they actually run into the friend of those uh spelunkers who had disappeared so long ago it's impossible for him to be alive latope uh, which means the mole and he is in there he's he's very kind of creepy and rat like he did a good job of, of performing that role i think um <laughs> definitely but he is there and is inexplicably alive and is helping lead them deeper. And so the next layer after greed would be wrath. Um, and they kind of go into this enclosure and it is filled with this filthy water, which again mirrors Dante's Inferno. The sixth layer is heresy, where they see Florentine walls and flamelit enclosures, again mirroring Dante's Inferno. Uh, next layer is violence. And a lot of this is where things start kind of getting out of hand. Um, yeah, they start dropping know, like flies around that point. Yeah, people start having hallucinations. Um, Susie is killed when Latope beats her to death. Um, this is really where shit hits the fan, for lack of a better phrase. Yes. <laughs> and then we have fraud. Yes. And I guess that would be reflected by the fact that they realize that the Philosopher's Stone that they had was false and that they have to go actually get the real one exactly and then finally they reach the ninth layer of hell which is treachery um and this is oh i love how they did this you know you see satan's throne and it's just this small insignificant chair um things get really dark there's a lot of like mists and you're not really sure what's going on um there's monsters walking around right and it comes to a point towards the end of the movie where they actually see, you know, Satan himself in this black hooded cloak. And what I love what they did is, you know, Satan is supposedly Lucifer who fell from heaven. And this persona in the movie, the side of his face is like smashed in like he fell from a high place. 
And I, I just thought it was such a simple but beautiful touch to this movie that, again, where if you know the background and you know kind of the history and the mythology behind all of this stuff, you really start to love this movie because it has so many shout outs for nerds like you and me. Yes. <laughs> Um, and wasn't the other half of his face almost like baby-like? Yeah, exactly. Because again, he was this this angelic, you know, cherub for, you know, to fit the stereotype who fell from heaven. Yeah, that was that was a really cool effect, and I really liked that throughout all of this, these last couple of circles. There's there's monsters being a, a constant threat, and the, the visual effects, especially in this section, are really pop. I agree. I mean, the the ending of this movie is definitely my favorite just because it does get so dark and kind of twisted and you're not sure what's going on. You know, to, to end the movie, Scarlet kind of realizes that as above, so below, uh, that she kind of has to go in reverse to all of the different levels to get the actual Philosopher's Stone. And she also starts to realize that they are in hell and they're being, you know, kind of attacked by all of these malevolent forces because each one of them has had a sin in their life that they have not resolved and so she kind of forgives herself and moves on and that kind of allows her to make get through this this hell untouched and i don't want to say untouched but she's able to survive i guess would be a better term I just wanted to briefly touch on specifically, you know, what Scarlet had to be forgiven of and, you know, kind of what she had to, I guess, forgive herself of uh, specifically. Um, and, and it kind of goes back to that phone call from earlier that uh, she has long blamed herself for not answering the phone the night that her dad killed himself. Uh, you know, he tried calling her and then shortly thereafter killed himself. And, you know, she's long blamed herself, basically, for his death. So that's fun. And, I mean, I really liked how they kind of made the movie also that they, we have to kind of face these sins that we've had and, and resolve them to get out of this hell. I think that kind of put a, a nice kind of a, oh, you know, we, people have to forgive themselves kind of a moral to the movie itself. Also, you know, kind of one of the other ones that this case i think is, is specifically the sin that was treachery as the other main uh, probably the other main character george who is the other kind of scholarly guy that's working with with the group uh, with scarlet specifically and they like previously had like a romance thing and like he didn't want to work with them but gets dragged into it his specific sin would be that he it's that he blames himself for his brother's death his brother drowned he went to get help but his brother probably, in his, at least in his mind, died thinking that his, that he had lied to him and that you know that he had failed him. Real briefly to kind of close off the more or the movie section of the podcast, I want to talk about how this movie. I mean, it's really awesome and I love it. It's great, but it's not the best of horror movies. The acting sometimes is pretty corny. The dialogue sometimes is pretty hard to get through. I love it for the occult aspects of it, for mythology, all of that kind of behind the scenes. But as far as horror movies go, it's not the greatest horror movie. Well, the the critics will definitely agree with you there. I was just curious, and so I was looking at kind of like how it scored. And at least, you know, according to Wikipedia, it has a 26% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 4.4 on Metacritic. Or no, sorry, a 38 on Metacritic. Yeah, I feel like that's really 
unfair to the film. Honestly, I felt like it was a lot better than that. I mean, I, I think it's certainly not one of the very best horror movies ever, but I'd say it was a solidly entertaining movie with a lot of depth to it. And, you know, even though it didn't always succeed in terms of being the most polished or well-acted at times, it still was a pretty solid movie. I was expecting it more to be 50-60 on Rotten Tomatoes, but apparently critics disagree with me there. And, you know, I... I'm glad that we can appreciate the movie for what it is. Um, you know, it is a very fun movie. If you haven't seen it, I would definitely recommend it. But again, it's not like, you know, The Exorcist or even The Evil Dead in terms of horror goes. I mean, there are definitely some strong scares throughout the film. You know, a lot of them kind of come with surprise monsters or deaths or things like that, you know, as they're traveling. But it doesn't feel constantly terrifying. I'd say, you know, it's it's scary probably 15% of the movie. The other, you know, 85% is either, you know, kind of build up to them going in, or once they're in, you know, it, the, the scares tend to be more claustrophobic than actually terrifying. But I'd say once it actually really gets going, especially the, the last few circles of hell, is, is when it really goes from being like a pretty good movie to a, a pretty solid great movie uh so if we were to rate it this is something new we should start what would you give it out of 10 screams out of 10 scream kings screams i don't know i'll think of something more cohesive next podcast (laughs) well yeah we'll think of something more clever but i i think i gave it a 7 out of 10 on imdb and i'm happy with that i i really enjoyed the film I give a lot of movies seven uh, if I if I enjoyed it, but didn't necessarily get totally blown away by it. Yeah, and I'd actually probably give it a six out of ten, honestly. So you're a little bit more nice to it than than I am, and it's one of my all-time favorite horror movies. Odd, but I get it. I guess there's a couple other things I just wanted to touch on it really quickly. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I just wanted to mention, you know, we you mentioned that it's a found footage film. I feel like as in terms of like how well it did as being a found footage film. It, it, it was fine, um, but I didn't really feel like it necessarily added anything to the movie for it to be found footage. I feel like found footage really is one of those subgenres of horror that really it it needs to be done for a good reason. And I didn't really see what that reason was in this movie. It wasn't necessarily poorly done. It wasn't too shaky or anything like that, but it still just didn't really add anything to it. Yeah, I can definitely see that. You know, for me, found footage is either a hit or it's a miss. And it was kind of in the middle. I mean, it it was good, but at times I thought the camera was a little shaky and crazy. Uh, I don't know. I've seen way, way worse in terms of how shaky a camera can be, so it didn't bother me. But also, I guess the other thing I wanted to touch on was just the very, very last shot of the movie where... They escape hell. Basically, they push through a manhole cover and they emerge into the streets of Paris and it's normal again. What is your thought on and that? that? So I, I've kind of researched that a little bit. And when I first saw the movie, I was a little disappointed. I was hoping that they were going to kind of come out of this manhole and it was going to be like this weird netherworld, kind of the upside down you know, from Stranger Things. But again, if you go back to Dante's Inferno, Dante escapes 
these nine layers of hell by going through Satan's navel, his belly button, pretty much. And so that's what the filmmakers were trying to recreate, was this kind of black pit that they had to go through was mirroring Satan's belly button. And it, I mean, it was a stretch. I don't think, I think it could have been done a lot better. Um, but that's kind of what they were going for, as far as I'm aware. I, I have very split feelings about the very last shot with them, you know, showing up in normal Paris again. Because, yeah, one, I recognize that it, it really does kind of follow the Inferno like the rest of the film does. So I understand it from that perspective. I also get that, like, you know, these characters kind of grew as people, the ones that survive, you know, and, and they're forgiven of their sins, or at least forgive themselves. And, and specifically, you know, we're talking Scarlet, George, and Zed, uh, who's one of the Spelunker guys. They all survive. Everyone else is dead. And so in terms, I guess, of symmetry with, with the Inferno and also uh, as far as their character arcs go, it made sense. But in terms of being horrifying, it made the ending a little bit too happy for me. I wanted it to have a sort of end on a note of despair, and it did not. Yeah, I, I definitely see that as well. I... I am a fan of movies and TV shows that don't always end in happy endings. And this was a perfect kind of a movie that could have ended. They're, they're trapped in hell. Or they become shades of hell. Yeah, just... Or, I mean, even if it was just more ambiguous, I would have been more happy. But it just ended very, like, oh, they're all good. They're in a street in Paris all, like, crying and laughing that they're finally free. And that just felt little too hunky-dory for me, but that's just me. I, I agree. Anything else you want to kind of cover with the movie itself? Um, no, I think we touched on it pretty well. So now let's get into uh, your occult corner, specifically with As Woo-hoo! Above, So Below, the phrase. So yeah, the phrase, As Above, So Below. So doing research for this, this phrase is so much bigger than I originally thought. There's so much information to these four little words that... I, I can't put it all in one in one episode. So I kind of took the, the key things that I thought were really interesting, and hopefully I can touch on those more than anything. Um, so the phrase itself, as above, so below, this is a hermetic term. And what hermetic means is it's relating to the esoteric belief system known as hermeticism. And Hermeticism was attributed to the writings of an individual named Hermes Trimagistus, if I am saying that right. Um, No one really knows when he lived, but he wrote or discovered or found this thing that's called the Emerald Tablet. The Emerald Tablet is really, it's kind of like the Bible of esotericism. Uh, It really lays the foundation for a lot of the mystic beliefs and practices that you see today, whether that be Wicca or the Age of the Golden Dawn. Um, Even in Thelema, Aleister Crowley's uh, kind of bastardization of the Hermeticism, you see a lot of these interweaving connections. So it's kind of the root of mysticism i guess is what you could say does does that make sense or did i just completely go way over your head um it it makes sense but i mean it, it felt almost like you were talking circles a little bit maybe maybe just kind of explain a little bit more of like what it means to be esoteric um yeah so esoteric 
traditions are really centered in spirituality. Uh, a lot of times in religions, you're going to you know, obviously find people who want to connect spiritually with God or Christ or Buddha or you know whoever you believe in. Esoteric beliefs are a little bit, I don't want to say funky or different, they're just, they're a little bit outside of the norm, but they're also very focused on spirituality. And something really characteristic of Hermeticism specifically is something called Prisca Theologia, which affirms that there's the existence of a single true theology or God and that God has given it to man to use and to use it for their benefit. And so this is kind of where esotericism comes into play that, you know, God has given us the ability to create magic, to do alchemy, to do these kind of supernatural tasks that you don't really see in other religions. Does that kind of break it down a little bit more? Yeah, that makes a little bit more sense. And so going back to kind of the original document that Hermes Trismegistus wrote or found or, you know, whatever you want to believe, the Emerald Tablet, it lists 13 different points that are kind of the foundation of Hermeticism and mysticism. And the very first one is where we get the phrase, as above, so below. And I'm going to read all 13 phrases because it's kind of fun, but... The first one is, that which is below is like that which is above, and that which is above is like that which is below, to do the miracles of one only thing. And so again, as above, so below, as in heaven, so on earth. You know, if heaven can do these magical miracles, we can do those here on earth as well. So the rest of the points go as follows. Number two. And as all things have been and arose from one by the mediation of one, so all things have their birth from this one thing by adaption. Number three, the sun is its father, the moon its mother, the wind hath carried it in its belly, the earth is its nurse. Number four, the father of all perfection in the world is here. Here being what I interpret as, you know, present, the present moment. Number five, its force or power is entire if it be converted into earth. Number six, separate thou the earth from the fire, the, sub the subtle from the gross, sweetly with great industry. Number seven, it ascends from the earth to the heaven, and again it descends to the earth and receives the force of things superior and inferior. Number eight, by this means you shall have the glory of the whole world. Number nine, and thereby all obscurity shall fly from you. Kind of that connecting with the spirituality, that enlightenment. Number ten, its force is above all force, for it vanquishes every subtle thing and penetrates every solid thing. Number eleven, so was the world created. Number twelve, from this are and do come admiral adapter adaptations. Whereof the means or process is here in this. Hence I am called Hermes Trimagist, having the three parts of the philosophy on the whole world. And the last one, that which I have said of the operation of the sun is accomplished and ended. You know, so those 13 points are kind of all over the place. You know, they don't make any sense. They're kind of batshit crazy. Um, and that's kind of what... Uh, the esoteric hermeticism is, it's very much interpretation of, you know, these cosmic events and this kind of spiritual 
identification that really has no figure or form. It, it's really hard to understand sometimes. Yeah. Um, and just some kind of big points that I want to talk about with the phrase as above, so below. Um, there are three main points that kind of come out in this phrase itself. Uh, the first one is what's called theurgy, or theurgy, theurgy. I can't talk today. I'm sorry, listeners. Apparently, I have a sin that I have not yet resolved, and this is my personal hell. <laughs> no, it's my personal hell because I have to edit this. <laughs> yes. Um, so yes, theurgy, which is a huge, huge component of hermeticism directly, and. That is that human beings have the ability to commune with the divine, with the deities, with God, whatever they believe, but not just communicate, but kind of bid for their power to perform acts. So alchemy, magic, kind of using that divine power to get what they want, so to say. And then the next two um, are kind of interrelated with as above, so below. Again, as above, so below, as in heaven, as on earth, and as on earth, as in heaven. And so the two big terms here, the first one's called henosis, which is becoming one in mind and body with the divine. So really, again, it's going back to that connecting with the spiritual, you know, living your life how you interpret the gods want you to live your life. And then finally, the big point with as above, so below is a term called apotheosis or deification. And you're going to see deification in a lot of Christian religions as well, in Catholicism, in Protestantism, uh, in the Mormonism movement. And this is where man becomes God, where you connect so intently with those divine spiritual powers, you yourself become an agent of the divine and full circle we go back to that frankenstein story this is apotheosis you know dr frankenstein was playing god he created life he became god he was deified as above so below you know if god can create life so can man and that's kind of a big esotericism hermeticism synopsis that i just threw out at all of our listeners and i apologize i think it's really cool to look at that so i guess knowing that um you know kind of how, that definition of that phrase how do you think that ties into the movie you know i don't know if i have an answer for that but i think it kind of goes back to dante's inferno that you know each of these layers that are related into hell you can kind of relate those to our daily life you know, life is not easy. Life is not just super chill. We kind of have to live through our personal hell. But once we get through it, you know, we can reach that divine. We can reach the spiritual. Uh, but it takes work and it takes you know, tribulation. It takes trial and error to get there. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing a couple of clear connections um, that, are, that are coming to mind. One, just, you know, as far as dealing with hermeticism, I mean, the fact that it's dealing with a philosopher's stone. Uh, is is a big idea there. I mean, that's kind of what right, you know, right. that idea is all about. Um, and then two, I mean, it seems like it's kind of like a, a bastardization of it uh, of that phrase, where it's not you know as in heaven as it is on earth. It's rather kind of more like as on earth as in hell. Um, and so basically, yeah, like these people were essentially living in these hells already. 
Um, no, you know, they literally went to hell and, and, you know, dealt with these things directly, but they were already having these things um, kind of destroy their lives from the get-go. I mean, that was already affecting them. You know, the, the death of the brother, the death of the dad. You know, these things were weighing down on these people every single day of their lives anyway. And so, you know, it's kind of almost like we create our own hell. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great insight. So it's kind of a, 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 a twisted way of, of approaching that same phrase, but I think it, it really works when you kind of dig into it. So, yeah. Once again, the movie gives us insights into our nerd fascinations. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, I think that covers everything I wanted to cover here. What do it yeah. for you? Yeah, same for me. Uh, again, just a huge shout out to all of our awesome listeners out there who put up with our ramblings about esotericism and <laughs> Dr. Frankenstein and As Above, So Below. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. We would love if you could just give us a review. If you're a fan of the podcast, give us five stars on you know, iTunes or Podomatic, it really goes such a long way. And also, I mean, it is December. It is that special holiday time. So be be extra generous. And, and again, as we said last time, give the gift that keeps on giving our podcast. Exactly. Shameless plug. As above, so below. <laughs> I'm just going to use that phrase now. For just like ending conversations. I think it's going to go over really well. <laughs> yes. And. Um, oh I was trying to think of something clever. To do with like catacombs or something. But it just didn't happen. All you need to do is just say. As above so below. Okay as above so below. 